a true understanding of liberalism is, in this sense, revolutionizing the tradition. It's overturning the tradition. Reactionary is reclaiming the tradition just under. And so this is why he's in the book, What is Left? He's trying to appeal to uh, his intellectual colleagues on the left to try to say, you guys have the right values, but you chose the wrong means. And because you're choosing the wrong means, you're going to end up with hell on earth rather than the possibility of true emancipation, tr right? True liberalism. Much of the political left aims towards a wealthy, dynamic and cosmopolitan society free of concentrated power and militarism. But using the state towards those ends is utterly self-defeating. My name is Harrison Griffiths and welcome to Moral Sentiments, the IA show exploring the common ground between liberalism and social justice. Throughout the Enlightenment era, liberals and left-wing groups shared a common cause against elitism, militarism and traditionalism. Embodied in groups like the Levellers during the English Civil War, the pro-Enlightenment French revolutionaries and the American anti-colonists, this tradition naturally lent itself towards principles like equality before the law, free markets and anti-imperialism. But there was a divergence in the late 19th century as the left went down the path of embracing the state to achieve its political ends. On the radical side, Marxists have tended to pursue using concentrated state power to establish and spread their revolution. On the moderate side, progressivism and social democracy dominate, but they still each envision a society where government planners use state power to guide society towards certain outcomes. For the most part, the statist tendency goes unchallenged on the left. They see those goals like anti-imperialism, anti-elitism and cosmopolitanism as perfectly compatible with big government. But a robust challenge was presented to this by Don Lavoie, an Austrian economist based at George Mason University in the 1980s and 90s. In two books, Rivalry and Central Planning, The Socialist Calculation Debate Reconsidered, and National Economic Planning, What is Left, Lavoie outlined why central planning was in fact antithetical to the left's stated goals. He argued that both comprehensive planning, as advocated by the likes of Marx, and crucially non-comprehensive planning, as advocated for by most of the modern centre-left, were not revolutionary, but fundamentally reactionary. He argued that it was no coincidence that the type of central planning advocated by Marxists, progressives and social democrats was first pioneered during the First World War. Naturally, that war brought previously unknown militarisation to Europe, and it was highly nationalistic in origin. It was that that created the perfect conditions for centralisation, which pioneers of modern central planning, like David Lloyd George in the UK, and Bernard Barrack in America clearly took note of. Planning headed up by those types of elite figures, both during and after the war, exposed the reactionary theory underlying central planning and also highlighted its unjust outcomes. Barrack's wartime planning board, which helped inspire peacetime planning boards and agencies in the United States, was plagued by cronyism. Large companies responsible for providing war materials lobbied the board for systematic price fixing, which would harm their competitors. This highlights one of Lavoie's most important insights. In addition to the well-litigated knowledge and incentive problems caused by socialist planning, Lavoie highlights the power problem. Any type of central planning that necessitates gifting vast amounts of authority and resources to the discretion of a small group of politicians, bureaucrats 
and well-connected market incumbents is unlikely to reduce concentrations of power. It runs in stark contrast to the left's goal of dispersing power beyond a small elite. But worse still, Lavoie points out that central planners inevitably realise they're unable to plan their way to the panaceas that they have promised. Consequently, they will adopt more overtly militarist policies, both in pursuit of greater efficiency and to demonstrate their strength. This is one reason why militarism is intrinsically linked to planned economies, with abundant examples ranging from the USSR and North Korea to fascist Italy and Ba'athist Iraq. Throughout history, liberals and the left have shared the same opposition to militarism and concentrations of power. But Lavoie comprehensively demonstrates that state economic planning actively undermines those goals, gifting outsized power to a small elite, promoting cronyism and corporatism, and inevitably leading to a more formalised, bureaucratised and militarised society. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome George Mason University Distinguished Professor of Economics and Politics, Peter Beckey. We'll discuss Don Lavoie's contributions and the left-wing case against central planning. Peter, thank you very much for joining me. So, first question I want to ask uh, is about the intellectual history that Don Lavoie charts, uh, where liberalism and the left are often aligned one in the same, but there's a crucial split in the 19th century. What are the main causes of that split and what, what are the main influences on it? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, Don tracks the sort of the history of, of uh, the evolution of liberalism, starting with the levelers and, you know, evolving like that, the history of, of liberalism. So what then causes the split? It's mainly hostility towards markets and attitudes towards markets. But this is like a big question. Like, why would you have such a inherent, in, you know, hatred of market e economies? Jim Buchanan put his finger on this, too, in a uh, wonderful essay. It's he, he was a very pithy writer, and so when he gives a long-winded title, you're always in shock. But this title is called The Potential and Limits of Socially Constructed Humankind. He never had a title like that. You know, he, he you know, limits of liberty, you know, these kind of democracy and deficit, those kind of things were his normal titles. But this one, but it's a very, very deep essay. And what he argues is that in the 19th century, you had the greatest amount of prosperity that humanity had ever had. You had the greatest amount of individual autonomy, uh, liberty that in individuals had ever had. Um, right. That doesn't mean it's perfect, but but compared to the past, you had more liberty than you ever had before. And you also had more peace than you ever had before. Again, you know, in relative terms, because life before that was always a nasty, brutish and short kind of war against all. But he said that that liberalism laid clear why those three things happened, but then the concern became one of equity, equality, and liberalism didn't have a good enough theory of justice. And so in addition to the kind of, you know, in, innate kind of di distru distrust of markets, there also was this idea of an intellectual argument about monopoly power, about business cycles, and that connection between monopoly power and business cycles reinforce each other. And the outcome of that is not only economic inefficiency, but also economic injustice. And so this really changed the nature of the conversation. The way McCloskey puts it is the clerisy after 1848. 
So, you know, that's in her work where she stresses liberalism. It's like liberalism is on this march. This is what it means to be again on the left. It's an emancipatory, emancipatory doctrine, you know, that is trying to free us from the crown, free us from the dogma of the altar, you know, uh, free us from the sword of the military. But the problem is, is that the clerisy in eight, after 1848 become completely hostile. And that and her argument is that they've stayed that way all the way through. And so this is a very complicated story for people like you and I who are committed to liberalism. It's a huge challenge for intellectual historians, just the curiosity of it. It's a very unusual thing. Like why all of a sudden, especially if you had prosperity, you know, peace and, 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 and liberty, why would you be so now like against it, you know? And, um, so anyway, I, that's a long winded answer to your question, but it's really the case that what the left, when it shifted its, its attitudes towards markets did, was they identified the causal mechanism of why they don't like the market. And that has to do with monopoly power and business cycles. And that, and that lead to economic irrationality and economic injustice. Yeah. And, and the, there's also a strong link that Lavoy draws throughout his work between militarism and planning as well. Yeah. And so when you're laying the intellectual foundations, of you, as you've just explained, this issue of business cycles, concentrations of, of power in the private sector and definitions of equality matter a lot. But in the actual implementation of modern planning, he highlights that the First World War is a, a very yeah. clearly sort of it's a seminal moment for the nature of planning uh, as we understand it to be now. Why is that the case? Well, I mean, they believe that they could have efficiency in single um, sort of a, a singular goal determining outcome. And so you would militarize the economy during a wartime to achieve wartime goals. So now the question is, why can't you militarize the economy in peacetime to achieve these social justice goals? And, you know, part of the whole issue, I mean, this is, again, a very complicated issue because there's many different attacks. Like one of them is, is that, you know, in a liberal society, you don't have a singularity event. You have a multiplicity event. So you have, a you know, but, you know, under planning, the idea was is that you could assume this under one plan. And there was thinkers like Walter Rathenau and others that they, you know, had developed these theories during World War One about how you can have rationally, you know, planning for the military effort. And then they just want to take everything they learned from that and then apply it to the peacetime for the economic goal of eradicating alienation and injustice, right? I mean, this is what they were trying to eventually do. That's why, you know, you're you're mainly relying on Lavoie's National Economic Planning, What is Left book. Um, his earlier book, they came out in the same year, but it, they precede each other, you know, as he wrote them. Um, but his other book called Rivalry and Central Planning, which is a more technical work than National Economic Planning, What is Left, um, in that book, the second chapter is all about what Marx was up to and the Marxian critique of, of capitalism. And it's extremely you know, important to understand why it is that Ma Marx thought that the only way that you could eradicate these problems was through a revolutionary project of transforming the entire process of production and bringing it under a, 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 a plan and what all that entails. So... Flipping back to the book you're talking about, 
Lavoie thinks that there's three coordinating mechanisms, tradition, market, and plan. Tradition is the way that we did things in ancient times. Market is what liberated us from the, you know, the, 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 the difficulties of those ancient times. But planning is supposed to perfect you know, what the market delivered. So where the market, because of monopoly and business cycles, is irrational, planning is going to be rational, right? That's, that's why the terms are always, you know, the rational economic calculation, right? Which to boil it down to your listeners, all it really means is economic rationality is that you can produce more with less, right? That's what it means. It's a, you know, you're producing more or less. You don't want to produce less with more. If you produce less with more, you're, you're going to have a bad economic outcome. If you produce more with less, you're going to have economic growth and development, a burst of productivity. And the point of the socialist revolution was to have a burst of productivity so that we could move from the kingdom of necessity, bounded by scarcity and all those things, to the kingdom of freedom, in which we could then open up and enjoy all the fruits of a post-scarcity world, which would include the abolition of division of labor and all the other kinds of things, and perfect harmony among the, because you're getting rid of the classes, so you would have perfect harmony. And so this was the promise, this was the dream aspiration. And so they were gonna use whatever tools and techniques capitalism had evolved to help them achieve that goal. So, you know, it's like in, you know, to relate this to today, it's not like modern techno-socialism is somehow really new because socialists have always tried to use the most advanced technologies for management at, the, at their disposal at the time. So in the early, early 20s, it was Taylorism, which was a management technique. You know, then it was like German war planning. I mean, this is Lenin. <laughs> you know, Lenin actually used to tell people what we're going to bring is Soviet democracy because the term Soviet means worker council. So Soviet democracy with German war planning. And then he, he thought that was like an aspiration that everyone would sign up and say, let me join that revolution, right? That was what he was going to do. Yeah. So this is catches the mindset that you're talking about at the time. And, and you, you talk about um, you know, Marx's claims as, as revolutionary, uh, revolution of planning. Um, and, and sort of a scientifically oriented system to try and, and perfect and smooth out some of those bad outcomes that spontaneous order, they would yeah. argue, create. Um, and, uh, but but Lavoie is very keen to stress, uh, I think in both books, that uh, planning is fundamentally reactionary. And you mentioned, yeah. you mentioned um, Lenin's uh, discussion of Soviet democracy and German war planning. It's no coincidence that a lot of German war planning was led by Erich Ludendorff, who you can't, you can't help but notice is a, a, a German general of aristocratic um, yeah. uh, ancestry, right, and background. Um, when Lavoie says, you know, planning is fundamentally reactionary, what does he mean by revolutionary and reactionary, and why does that matter? Well, because liberalism is emancipatory, and so a true understanding of liberalism is in this sense, revolutionizing the tradition. It's overturning the tradition. Reactionary is reclaiming the tradition just under. And so this is why he's in the book, What is Left? He's trying to appeal to uh, his intellectual colleagues on the left to try to say, you guys have the right values, but you chose the wrong means. And because you're choosing the wrong means, you're going to end up with hell on earth 
rather than the possibility of true emancipation, right? True liberalism. And so as he calls it, true radical liberalism, right? Which is in his writings is radical libertarianism, uh, right? It, it is what he's trying to get at. So chapter seven of National Economic Planning, what is left lays out, you know, this beautiful like this depiction of where we should go. And he contrasts the American Revolution with the Russian Revolution. And his argument is that the Russian Revolution was doomed from the beginning, right? Because it, it's this reactionary one, whereas the American Revolution just was incomplete. It was incomplete because of the Trail of Tears. It was incomplete because of slavery. It was incomplete because the way it dealt with women. But that doesn't mean that the core ideas couldn't be completed by then, you know, fixing and, and addressing those issues. And then look what happens. And that's what he's trying to give us a picture of. And that those are consistent with market liberation, with volunteerism, um, all of that. And so, you know, it's a very inspiring book um, in the sense of, you know, opening up the space for us to explore, you know, what a true liberal society would look like. Um, and what is the consequences of planning because planning actually promises something that it just can't deliver. So it drags us back down. And that's why the militarism aspect is so important to him, because the left, especially when Lavoie was writing, was anti-military. You know, it's hard in American context today because we don't really have a, uh, you know, a, 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 like an opposition, uh, you know, a leftist opposition to militarism, because now, you know, people on the left have become more, accustomed, I guess, to some of these things, you know, and so we don't have an anti-war left like we once did, mainly because like when Obama was in power or Clinton was in power, they engaged in war activity. And so they're not, you know, Eugene McCarthy or someone like that who was, you know, or, you know, a peacenik during the Vietnam War. They're, they're, they're opposite of that. And so we lost that kind of in our political discourse um, in, in that regard. And so, but Lavoie, at the time Lavoie was writing, Reagan's in power, right? And Reagan is like free market and rattle the saber, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Lavoie is trying to say that's not consistent with a free market. And so let's not like pin our hopes on the conservatism of a Ronald Reagan because he's undermining our, you know, our revolutionary ideas. And so you on the left who have this reactionary attitude towards Reagan, you're right. This is what Lavoie is doing. We should embrace markets. We should actually, you know, but... It's not that we should brace more government because more government like national economic planning, which was in the vogue at the time, is going to end up by being corrupt, militarized, reinventing monopolies. Right. So he, that's why he links it to the Reconstruction Finance Corporation during uh, the Great New Deal. And he shows the corruption that's involved in that. And he shows that whenever we get massive state involvement, the state ends up by corrupting the liberating forces. And then the answer to that is to bring all of those things under state control, which is the militarization aspect. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's something I'm keen to, to stress to people who, are, who I argue with who are from the left about concentrations of power and monopolies, as they sometimes call them. Uh, in, the, in the progressive era in the United States, which very much did spread to, to some extent across Europe, um, and, and even today on both the left and unfortunately now increasingly the right. This rhetoric about monopolies and trusts is very much back in vogue. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, you can kind of see why somebody, particularly somebody who is committed to a, a, an open, equal society, 
would be worried about these concentrations of power. Now, you and I would also say that we despise concentrations of power, yeah. uh, but we are very committed to having a lot less, a hell of a lot less government. And yeah. so what, what is the argument that markets and a free society are better ways to deal with concentrations of power than getting the state involved is, besides the, the obvious fact that the state itself so, is an incredibly dangerous concentration of power, right? Yeah. So the source of the monopoly privileges is state sanction. So we have empirical evidence on this, right? So at the time Lavoy is writing, there was a book circulating at the time by Dominic Armentano. Um, it's called Antitrust and Monopoly. It's a history, case history of antitrust policy in the United States. And Armentano asks a very simple question, which is, when we look at all the antitrust cases in the United States, how many times did we see the firm that's being attacked actually restrict output and increase their price, which is what a monopolist should be doing, right? So we should go back and we should look at Alcoa. We should look at brown shoe. We could look at all these cases and they should be restricting output and raising price. That's why they're monopolistic firms that need to be broken up. And it turns out, by the way, that that wasn't the case. In all these cases, they were increasing output and lowering price, which means that the, the antitrust policies were being strategically used by their competitors to, to you know, punish their, their uh, you know, competitors in the market. And so this is, you know, just right on the heels of, you know, George Stigler's work on capture and, you know, all these kind of things like that. So Milton Friedman famously wrote, you know, in, in Capitalism and Freedom that he would prefer to have a natural monopoly than a regulated monopoly. Right. And the reason is, is that the natural monopoly still has the threat of contestation by some other firm that would come in, whereas the regulated monopoly doesn't at all. Yeah. Right. It's just it's, it's captured completely. And for for your listeners, I really recommend anyone who doubts the capture theory of regulation to look up on NPR, National Public Radio in the United States, the Carmen Segaria tapes. Uh, this is after uh, the financial crisis in 2010. Uh, Carmen Segaria was a young lawyer, very uh, romantic, wanted to be a regulator. And so she decided to become a regulator, you know, on financial industry. And she's at the Fed being a regulator, and she realizes that the Fed's not in control. Goldman Sachs is in control. And so she brings in one of these cell phones and puts it on record in her pocketbook and records five hours. And it's explicit that Goldman Sachs is the one in charge. And then she, you know, released these tapes and it's all out there. And that's like, you know, that's just standard business. Right. It's a standard business. Nowadays, you know, they want to reform, uh, like regulate the platforms. And the first person to raise their hand is Zuckerberg. Oh, I'll be on the regulatory commission. Right. You yeah. know, of course you will. You know. And so this is what Lavoie's pointing out was the standard way of thinking about what is the reason why we have these concentrations of power and why are they effective rather than getting chiseled into by their competitors. And so, again, to keep, you know, the context in time. You know, Lavoie is writing in the early 80s. At that same time, Bill Bommel's developing the theory of contestable markets. You have the Chicago, you know, new learning and I.O. and all these things like that. Now you fast forward 20 years to today 
And it's the opposite. We have the new Brandeisians named after Louis Brandeis. We think monopoly is everywhere we look out the window. And this has spread throughout the world. It, it, this is the EU commission is looking at this. You know, the United States is now doing this again. And so we've forgotten, we've entered a great forget period and we've lost control about how it is the state is the one who manipulates money and credit and the state is the one who grants monopoly privileges. And so the reason why you have any of these distortions in the economy is not because of the normal entrepreneurial give and take of an economy and the, you know, yes, you know, there's going to be great disruptions due to entrepreneurial innovation, but there's also quick imitation, a profit opportunity that's there is soon realized and other people jump in and try to do that. They bring order to the market, speculators move prices to, to bring order to the market. But the state, what it does is it stops that process by privileging some at the expense of others. And if you bear with me one second, I'll give you, a, you know, this is before we started recording, we were talking about Gordon Tulloch. Gordon Tulloch gave a famous analogy that we should all remember, and I think it's been forgotten. It's called the tale of the Roman emperor. Okay. And in the tale of the Roman emperor, the emperor is asked to judge a singing contest. And after hearing the first contestant, the emperor just gives the award to the second under the assumption that clearly the second couldn't be any worse than the first. Yeah. But the reality is, is that what if the second is much worse than the first? We have to let that second singer sing. And when we study the second singer, the state, we so we've condemned the market, we give the award to the state. But when we actually examine the state, the vote motive, rent seeking, all of these other things, we end up by seeing like, man, the state actually causes more havoc. And this is what Lavoie is trying to get across. And that's why the ultimate problem of the state is militarization, right? If, if the goal to achieve the goal is that you have to bring everything under the, you know, control of the state, then, you know, we've lost our autonomy. We've lost our ability to generate prosperity. We've lost our ability uh, to have peace because we're now honestly at war. And so, you know, and nowadays, you know, you were mentioned earlier about the right moving in this direction. It's, it's amazing, actually how the new conservative movement has moved so much away from markets. But, um, you know, Orwell said the future of humanity was a giant boot stepping on its face, right? And I like to point out, it doesn't matter whether or not that boot's on the left foot or the right foot, it's still stamping on your face. Absolutely. And so we have to be very weary of these forms of right-wing and left-wing populism that are like, you know, stamping on us and find ways to put restrictions on that um, and, and, and build the best arguments we can. Absolutely, we will put the link to National Economic Planning, what is left in the description. Uh, and to everybody at home, thank you very much for watching and listening.